Shalom. Thank you for listening to this podcast of the Jayberg Wilk Learning Series. I'm Shmuley Yanklowitz, President and Dean of Valley Beit Midrash. Here at VBM, we strive to bring you only the highest quality of Jewish learning. Bringing pluralistic and innovative Jewish programming to the Jewish community that craves substance and insight is our passion. But we cannot do it alone. To support our endeavors, please consider donating a tax-deductible contribution to our organization. By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering Jewish wisdom to people all over the country and all over the world. Please visit www.valleybaitmadrash.org. Thank you so much and enjoy the program. parents or your grandparents came from? Just call them out. Germany, Austria. Ger- Germany and Austria. Mexico. Uh, Mexico. I uh, heard of Mexico. Yeah. Italy. Hungary. Italy. Ireland. Ireland. Poland. Poland. Russia. 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 Lithuania. Austria. Romania. Austria. Romania. Pa- Palestine. What's it? Ukraine. Ukraine. Latvia. Latvia. Holland. Japan and Holland. 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 Any others? Okay. All right. So, um, to some degree, we are all uh, of an immigrant descent. Um, and we might ask the question um, Am I more, for those who are Jewish in the room, who identify as Jewish, am I primarily Jewish? Am I primarily American? Do I call myself an American Jew or a Jewish American? Um, and how do we understand uh, such an identity? Um, actually, it's interesting uh, as well to think about um, Jamaica. You know, uh, you might think it's, it's uh, irrelevant for a Jewish historian to, to look at Jamaica, but only uh, two and a half centuries ago, there were more Jews living in Jamaica than in continental America. And interesting enough, um, um, Jews in Jamaica were uh, slave owners. Um, and actually, it is incorrect Uh, those who want to make Jews look bad and claim that Jewish slave owners in the South were worse than other slave owners in the South. And it's also incorrect by those who wish to make Jews look good um, to claim that that Jews in the South were better to slaves than the rest. In fact, Jews um, fit into America like most other Americans. And and don't trust me on this. There's a scholar at ASU named Stan Mervis that this is his field of of scholarship. Um, And so it's interesting to look at that case. And what happened if you were a Jew of color? Could a white Jew own a Jew of color in Jamaica just a few centuries ago? Think about, think about that, the, of the tensions that emerge if you were a Jew of color, knowing that your Jew might have been your owner at some point, mm-hmm. right? So the immigration uh, story um, in regards to Native Americans, in regards to, uh, in regards to slavery, um, and in regards to actually this whole region that we're in now, who used to own this region? <laughs> um, Natives. Natives, and even before, um, yeah, yes? thought about it before, not in terms of Jewish slave owners owning Jewish slaves, but Christian slave owners, not only own, owning Christian slaves, they, they tried to get them to be Christians. Uh, yes, that, that, so, that thing also, yes. And so they would have the same kind of right. perspective. And, right. And it happened. Right. Great. Okay. And part of the problem is that some people can be visible and some people can be invisible about their identity, right? Um, Jews, white Jews, are pretty decent at being invisible. 
It turns out in the bathhouse, Jews used to hide their circumcision. Uh, Jewish men would uh, engage in certain procedures to hide their circumcision because that's the only way someone would know, right? If you were a white Jew. But today, um, we're in an interesting role in that um, Jews are, American Jews, in particular American white Jews, are the quintessential insiders and outsiders. We have the power of being insiders, and yet we have the spiritual historical consciousness of being outsiders, right? And sort of, that's a unique role to play, right? Because other, other minorities, pri uh, uh, primarily or solely, have the role of being outsiders without the access of the inside. Um, if you look at Jewish DC or even at the White House, <laughs> Jews are on the inside. Um, evangelicals even more so. But okay, there's a lot to grapple with there. So, um, so Moshe, actually it's interesting enough, when Moshe is, when Moses is realizing who he is, right, um, in this great moment, he sees a taskmaster beating uh, a Hebrew. And, um, and it says he looks both ways he looks both ways, and he um, sees there's no person there. And then he strikes down the taskmaster. Now, there's lots of ways if we were, we could spend a whole session on that, and, and I'm sure many of us have thought about that passage. Some people suggest what that's about is he doesn't want to get caught. Because if you strike down the taskmaster, you're going to be killed. He's looking both ways, and he sees nobody's there, so he does it. Another might say this is about leadership. Nobody else is going to step up, so he steps up. Right? Our friend Yavila McCoy, a Jew of color, said this was actually about a process of dehumanization. Because of course there were slaves all over the place. What do you mean he looked around and saw no person? Those people weren't people to him. He looked around and he saw no person. He just saw slaves. Right? But actually, one of my teachers, Rabbi Weiss, suggests, it says, Kovako. He looks Kovako inside of himself. He looks here, am I an Israelite? And he looks here, am I a Hebrew? And he sees no person. He doesn't know who I am. Am I Mexican? or American? Am I Japanese or American? Am I primarily a Jew or an American? And those were actually intention, because as many of you who were alive at the time, it was only um, at 1967, uh, connected to the, the war of 1967, that Jews in America really started to feel like, all right, maybe we're going to be okay here, and things started to turn. If you look at Kippa wearing in, in, a pub, in American public, 1967, winning that war in Israel, actually was a turning point for, for people wearing kippot in public. Um, so, but prior to that, um, being a Jew and being an American was really intention. Some people might still experience that today, but I would say that, I, I bet if we looked at stats, the average American Jew does not feel a tension between being American and being Jewish. There might be some tension, but it's not a daily existing tension uh, in the way that other, other groups might experience a clash of identities, in a sense. So the problem of visibility and invisibility, right? So if you're a trans person, it's, there's a problem of being invisible, right? I'm not seen, someone doesn't know that I'm trans. But then the problem is you're more vulnerable once you're visible. Now that I'm seen, I'm more visible. So too, if, if I'm an undocumented um, resident in this country, if that's known, I'm more vulnerable. So there's the threat of invisibility, I can't get the services I need, and then there's a the threat of visibility. If you see me, now I'm at risk. And what does it mean to be a Jew in the public square, right, today? What does it mean um, in terms of how we think about security? Someone. Uh, okay, I, I don't want to get to go too far down the line there. Uh, but, uh, but essentially, what does it mean to be public about our Jewishness? As you know, the menorah used to be in the public square. It used to be public until there was mass persecution, and so we moved it inside. Now there's groups more and more who want to have public menorahs, and there's this whole debate on boards, oh, how public do we want to be around our institutions? Um, okay, 
So I'm going to pass around a handout. I, engage, I, I welcome you to push back, to share, um, uh, to do whatever you do. OK, so um, uh, with your permission, the larger pushbacks, questions you have, if you'll save, if there's little clarification, comments, or questions, please throw them out. But I want to throw out a whole bunch of material to get, get us started. OK. So firstly, I want to start with this idea um, that's not a political idea, but a theological idea, that we are, um, that we are strangers vis-a-vis -vis God. However we understand divinity, we are strangers before God. So what does it say in Leviticus? In Vayikra, it says, the land shall not be sold in perpetuity, for the land is mine, for you are foreigners and temporary dwellers with me. Right? That means that there's, this is not a political status. As human beings, as people who will spend a blip of a moment on this earth, in, in the billions of years of this planet, and you're going to get to spend 50, 60, 70, 80, 90, hopefully 120 years here, um, you are basically foreigners to me. Right? You are passing through this earth Yes, you might have some illusion of permanence, um, but actually, um, you're merely passing through here. And, and we'll come back to this idea that these people are called gerim, foreigners before God. Then we see here in Divrei Hayamim, in Chronicles, uh, for we are collectively like foreigners before you. In front of divinity, there is what the existentialists will call alienation. Interesting, alienation coming from alien, right? Um, uh, uh, we collectively, as the human race, are, are, are ourselves foreigners before divinity. And then just to give another example, in the book of Psalms in Tehillim, classically attributed to uh, King David, says, he is the king of the Jews, of the Israelite kingdom. And he, even he says, right, he's the establishment. Right? Even if I'm the king of the land, I myself am also... Again, I'm also a foreigner before you got, right? So here, and here I'll, I'll say what may perhaps be one of the most radical things I'll say, and although I'll bracket the modern reality, theologically, um, Jewish theology does not believe in ownership, right? Now that's not me critiquing modern property rights. It's also not me critiquing modern ideas of nation states. But on a theological level, there's not borders, right, more or less, and there's not ownership. Right? Because at the end of the day, um, and, and I'll give an example. The, the Torah itself says that 10% of our income is maser. It's, it's tithe, right? Um, we give 10% of income is the idea. And it's not that I now give charity. It's that I never owned that 10%. It, I had to leave the, that part of the field there. I don't collect from the field and then go give it out and feel good and put my name on a plaque. Nothing against names on plaques. Um, Jerusalem is hilarious because every stone's got a name on it, right? Every bench and every, right? Um, it's a great thing. People, people should be uh, celebrated for giving. Um, um, but the idea that um, I don't even take the stuff in from the field, it's never even mine, right? And so too, the notion of, a, of modern borders as we know it is also kind of a, a modern construct. To be sure, the Torah does understand something of boundaries and of borders. Um, but, in, but in a different way than we understand it today, of, of how fluid the, the, the transience was. Yes? So there's uh, portions of the Torah that talk about the rules of how you treat slaves. So implied in that is an acceptance of ownership. Ah, OK, interesting. 
However, we have something, a concept such as Jubilee, and a concept such as Shemitah, which basically says there is an illusion, um, because we have to have structure and order in society, of property rights, but, and even of debts, but we're gonna like cancel those debts, and we're gonna cancel slavery, um, and, if you, and if you do one thing to harm that slave, um, they will have to be immediately freed. Um, so, okay, that gets to a larger theological issue, the whole issue of slavery in the Bible, which we'll bracket for the moment, but it's a great point. So, okay, again, we're not rejecting them in modernity the notion of nation states, the notion of property rights, but merely to state that on a theological level, when we die from this world, we leave everything, right? We go into the ground, as I was standing there this morning, we go into the ground, and we take nothing with us, right? So on the level of the soul, we, there is no ownership, right? Yes? I'm kind of on the fifth parallel track. Great, over there great. Um, I, I, I never believe in the ownership as, as property. I think of it as agency. I own the power. Great, exactly. Great, great. Good, which is actually the way I think traditionally they understood uh, Jewish marriage. Um, um, for anyone who has ever married here, how many of you only had one ring in your ceremony? How many of you had two rings in your ceremony? Okay, so traditionally there was only one ring used. And, sorry? And that's, uh, you had one or two? One in the ceremony. One in the ceremony. Traditional weddings um, always had one ring because essentially it was what you call a kinyan, an acquisition. Now, somebody might have understood that as a man buying a woman, as might have been understood in all ancient societies, essentially a deal between parents, right? Um, um, but um, actually, um, the way it's generally explained in Jewish thought, it was an acquisition of legal rights and responsibilities, essentially. So you're, it, it, that it's about agency primarily and not about uh, ownership. So I appreciate that comment. Okay, now let's move from this idea of theology for a moment and look at the idea of the paradigmatic unjust society. What is the paradigmatic unjust society in the Torah that is worthy of destruction? Well, I guess there's two. Yeah. So, yeah, right. Egypt isn't even worthy of destruction. Egypt doesn't get totally destroyed, right? The first, of course, is the flood. The whole world gets flooded, right? Um, and we can look at what's, what's, what that's attributed to over there. Um, then if you look at the book of Jonah, of course, we have Nineveh. Um, but if you look at the paradigmatic case is Sodom and Gomorrah, right? Uh, Stom and Amorah. And what was their sin? It says in Pirkei Rebbe Lezer, they issued a proclamation in Sodom saying, everyone who strengthens the hand of the poor and the needy and the ger, the, the foreigner, with a loaf of bread shall be burnt by fire. Right, so the rabbis taught that actually what made that city worth it, worthy of destruction is that they particularly targeted the poor and the foreigners, right? Mm -hmm. That those were the people who were targeted. And actually, it goes further. It says there was a little girl in, in Sodom who um, saw a, 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 hungry, uh, a, a, a hungry foreigner begging in the street and gave a, a loaf of bread to this person. And so the, the, the officials of Sodom uh, chained her up to the city fence and wiped honey all over her body until bees stung her to death. And they said that was the tipping point in God's eyes to destroy the city, right? So who is the Sodomite? Um, today we think of Sodomites as are, are two, two men who have anal sex, right? But actually to the rabbis, the Sodomites, the people worthy of destruction, are, are, are those who... 
um, seek to harm, particularly target, the most vulnerable foreigners inside the land. Um, so uh, now this is difficult. This is difficult for us to understand, even if we're one, two, three generations away from, from immigration, because of the breakdown of empathy in America. A, university, a, a, a recent study of University of Michigan, which I talk about all the time, showed that the capacity for empathy in the last few decades dropped 40%. It dropped 40%. Uh, most people think that's about screen time. We look more at screens than eyeballs, but it's even more than that as to why um, there's a breakdown of understanding. You should love your other like yourself. That means the other, who's not like you. It's not so hard to love those who are like you, right? In fact, um, all kinds of mobsters and mafia folks and, um, and, and other uh, radical particularists, parochialists, um, are really, really good to those close to them and around them and just like them. Really, really good. Um, not only strategically out of loyalty and, and out of gain, but also because they really love those people, right? But what happens when someone's not like you? Um, so, um, okay, so, so, so the second paradigm we're looking at is this idea of, well, not just what does the just society look like, because that's complicated to think about utopia, or even in a pragmatic realm, what does the just society look like? But what does the evil society look like? Like, what is the worst of the worst? And, and the rabbis are very clear that that is about violence, right? The world is flooded, the rabbis say, because of Hamas. Interesting that it's called Hamas, right? But, but the word for violence in Hebrew is Hamas. Um, and, um, but also, those who particularly target um, those who are the most poor and needy and don't have legal protections, okay? All right, so let's jump to our section three here, where we move to this idea um, which we most famously look to around how we think of the gear. Uh, we'll define the word gear in a moment. So Emmanuel Levinas, um, a French Talmudist and philosopher of the 20th century, writes, to punish children for the fault of their parents is less dreadful than to tolerate impunity when the stranger is injured. Let passerby know this. In Israel, princes die a horrible death because strangers were injured by the sovereign. The respect for the stranger and the sanctification of the name of the eternal are strangely equivalent. Hmm. Um, now, if you've joined us over the years at VBM, you know we sometimes like to compare Levinas and Buber. And one of the ways we like to do that is that um, they both are interested in the power of the encounter of the face of the other, right? Levinas struggles with the question, how could the Holocaust happen? And, and thinks the main reason the Holocaust could happen is that we uh, allowed ethics to be uh, removed from the human realm into the metaphysical. And we had these abstract principles and ideas about ethics, and we need, to we need to regroup ethics into the power of the human face. That, that I cannot look at the face of another human being and put them into a concentration camp or burn their body um, because I see their face and their face awakens my moral responsibility. I don't need some, because Germans are totally enlightened and, and one of the most educated uh, factions of the 20th century and yet could do the most barbaric things in the name of ethics, right? And so how do we reroute it back in, in the face? Buber um, is also interested in the human encounter um, Paul Mendes Flor also talks about his, di his dialogical encounters with cats and with horses as well, but primarily in the, in the human encounter. But here's the difference, that for, le for, um, for, for Buber, if you recall his concept of I and thou, 
right? If I make the other instrumental in any way, um, it, I have moved the I-thou encounter to an I-it, right? Mm. Uh, and, and, and forgive me if this is already a concept that you're very familiar with, so I'll, I'll only stay on it very briefly, that I have exploited you, I have made you instrumental by making you use for my gain, by turning this I-thou encounter into an I-it encounter, right? Where you are not an ends in yourself in a Kantian fashion, but a means to a different ends. So for Buber, the, hu the human face encounter does not have any political or ethical implications. It is merely a spiritual dynamic of me being present with the other in their full dignity. Levinas comes and says, how in the world can you say that, right? Major political and ethical uh, implications emerge from the I-thou encounter. I don't make someone else instrumental by now being politically and ethically responsible for them. So it's an interesting debate about how we think about the human encounter in such a way. Um, in any case, Levinas it really believes that, um, like you said, the respect for the stranger and the sanctification of the name of the eternal are strangely, uh, are strangely equivalent. Now, to be sure, we're not saying anything, well, I was going to say something deceptive, uh, not intentionally deceptive, but now I'm, I'm seeing it would be deceptive. I was going to say we're not saying anything political in this, in this session. But the reason I say that that's deceptive is because actually never trust anyone who says they're saying something apolitical. Because all human language is political. When you choose to call someone undocumented versus an, an illegal alien, you're making a political choice. When you talk about the LGBT community versus homos, right, you're making a political choice about how to talk about people. Right? So all language is itself political. This is not just about being PC or not PC. Right? It is political. And so um, you should walk out the back door. Someone is deceiving you if they say, we don't talk politics here. right? Because every choice is a political one. Right? So, um, so actually, we're not talking about partisan politics. Um, we're talking about human issues and textual issues. And there will be political implications to the language we use. And, but nonetheless, we invite pushback on everything, of course. OK, so that's Levinas. Now, I'm going to just quickly run through this idea, because it's very familiar to many of us here, of how often we see this idea of the foreigner in the Chumash, in the five books of Moses. It says in Exodus, the you shall not oppress a stranger, for you know the feelings of the stranger. It says in Deuteronomy, do not pervert the justice for the foreigner. And then if you might have thought, okay, just do no wrong, but then it says, you should love the stranger. Wow, love the stranger. Don't just not harm them. Proactively love them. Okay, now uh, the rabbis say that 36 times, double chai, double chai, the Torah gives a decree on how we uh, positively treat the, the foreigner. Now, if I said ger, how would you define the ger? What's that word mean? Stranger. Stranger. Now, most would think we mean convert. Because in the Talmud, a ger becomes a convert. When the Talmud, the rabbis through roughly the first century through roughly the sixth century, talk about gerim, they're talking about those who are Gentiles who choose to become Jews. That's what a ger means. And today in modern literature, if we talk about a ger, that's usually who we're talking about. But in the Bible, in the Hebrew scriptures, a ger is a Gentile living within the Jewish, in the Jewish space, right? Within a Jewish space, right? So the ger in all those texts is not talking about someone who has converted, but actually it's dealing with um, Gentiles who are a minority within a Jewish community, okay? Okay, um, questions, thoughts, pushback at this point um, before we move on. Okay, well, actually, going back to this language point before Steve, I, um, Ellie Wiesel famously said, 
Um, no person can ever be illegal. Right? That was a famous, uh, uh, how, how in your essence could you be illegal? Someone might do something illegal, but to actually be an illegal uh, was something Wiesel wanted to strongly push back on. Um, so uh, it says here in the Mechil to the Rabbi Yishmael, you shall not wrong or oppress the Ger, for you were Gerim in the land of Egypt. You shall not wrong with words. You shall not oppress financially. So there's a financial issue, but also this issue of words, how we talk about the other, itself is a part of the Jewish legal discourse, which, which is what uh, Wiesel was responding to. Yes, please. Is uh, a stranger necessarily from a different land, or could it be someone with great, whom great. we great disagree point. and are in turmoil? Oh, 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 okay. I thought you were going a different direction. Well, so the first thing to say was that in a, in a, in a Jewish society, um, such as the state of Israel, um, or such as you know, King David's kingdom, whatever the case is, someone might have actually lived there for decades or centuries. Their family might have lived there for centuries. They're not a foreigner to the land at all, right? Um, um, but they are, a, they are deemed a gare merely by the fact of being a minority um, within a sovereignty that, that recognizes them as a minority without full rights, in a sense. Yes? So it's anybody that might, under other circumstances, be referred to as other. Right. Any. Yes, exactly. In fact, some, some of the commentators go exactly that direction, which ties in your other point. That this, the gear is not just a convert, it's not only that within a political entity, that the gear is actually someone who is, can be deemed as more vulnerable on an objective or subjective level, mm -hmm. or someone who I deem as the other, right, on a, on a relational subjective level to some degree, right. So, which is also why, um, interesting enough, when... Um, um, when the, uh, there's a tension. The Torah says uh, you should, um, you should basically you should help those you love, those who are like you. You should help your friend. Right? But it also says if your enemy is having trouble with their donkey, you should go and, um, and help them with the burden. Right? Your enemy. Um, and so the Talmud, as it likes to do, it finds stirots, stirots. It finds contradictions. And it says, well, what would you do if those happened at the exact same moment? Right? Um, you're walking down the road, and your friend is having trouble with, with, with her donkey, and your, and your enemy is having trouble with his donkey. Who do you help first? Right? And the Talmud says you should help your enemy first. Um, be, um, and part of an explanation is that, that a hero is defined as someone who turns an enemy into a friend. But the other explanation is that it's your Yetzir Hara. It is the evil inclination telling you to only help your friend. And so to overcome that, you want to, you want to first go, now that's a little bit counterintuitive, and it's not something that we would apply to every situation to help an enemy before a friend, um, because that, that could also become evil, right? If my mother is sick over here, and someone who's like a really bad person is sick over here, to help that person over my mother might objectively be deemed uh, problematic. Um, but we, it also wouldn't be hard to imagine a case where it would be a good choice. Right? Okay, so then we even go to the emotional and spiritual well-being, source four, um, in Deuteronomy. Uh, make sure mine's the same, yeah. Good. Uh, when we celebrate our holidays. Right? These are the three that are normally lumped together. The stranger and the widow and, um, and the, the, the child that we should, we should not uh, define as, as an orphan as I translated here, but actually as a child, a child without a living parent, um, a vulnerable child even. Someone might actually have living parents. For example, a foster child might be defined as a yatom, even if they have two living parents. Um, so it's not just an orphan, it's someone, a child who is particularly vulnerable due to 
distress or distance from a parent, in a sense. So here, on a deeper level, we're not only concerned about their dignity, about their financial well-being, um, uh, but also about, um, uh, um, uh, about their spiritual and emotional well-being as well. So, um, so, so this is a particularly poignant issue for Jews. Jews have been on the front lines of thinking about refugees and immigrants for a long time in America for lots of reasons. Um, one, because of our sources. Secondly, because it's our history that Jews were not protected. For 2,000 years, we were a minority in a diaspora where our rights were not protected. Now, that narrative sometimes gets misused. Sometimes it gets used like this. Um, Jews had a land and sovereignty, and then we lost that land in, 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 um, in the expulsion of 70 common era with the second destruction of the second temple, which is what we're in the three weeks period now of mourning. Uh, or partially mourning that in addition to some other things. And then we got a land back and sovereignty back, and then we were safe. Now, that narrative at very large is true, um, that sovereignty uh, has been more protective of Jews. However, it also um, uh, is used to sometimes imply that Jews were never safe outside of sovereignty, which is certainly not true. There were many time periods where Jews may not have been, uh, had the full rights of citizenship, but lived fairly comfortably and respected, again, not with full rights, um, but like the golden age of Spain is a great example, um, where actually Jews were very well integrated into government and into business and into relationships. So, so we shouldn't allow that, um, that narrative to be politically hijacked in a way that makes it sound like the only way Jews are safe in the world is through sovereignty, even though sovereignty, in my view, is really, really important for safety. Mm. Um, and, and that um, uh, self-determination for nation states um, is a right of minorities who have been refugees in the world. Yes, please. Wouldn't you say temporarily safe? Because temporarily safe, right. Because the right. might yeah. right. Spain, how did that work out? Yeah, yes, yeah, good point, good point. Um, which actually, uh, for another time, we talked in a, in a recent session about Maimonides' temporary conversion to Islam. Um, and actually, um, actually, at a certain point, even before you're expelled, um, how you might actually have to convert to even survive to some degree. Um, and in fact, that's what a lot of Jews in America did today. And I'm, not I'm certainly not claiming that all who have engaged full assimilation in America um, have done it in that regards. Um, but um, that's, it, it is a part of the story. Um, that actually, uh, as uh, Professor David Myers argued, um, the greatest uh, pushback against um, uh, assimilation um, is not wonderful Jewish programs, although we love support for them, um, uh, but actually anti-Semitism. Um, anti-Semitism is the best way to keep Jews alive, it turns out, um, spiritually alive. Um, as much as we might hate anti-Semitism, when, when Jews are other, Jews stay among Jews. And when Jews are accepted, Jews assimilate. Um, uh, so, uh, so, anyways, there's a lot to say about that too. But yes. And, and how is this dynamic? Is that an important factor going on in Israel now, where the Jews are perceived by some as being the oppressor right. in a reverse role, which they traditionally seen themselves in? Yeah, I, absolutely. So, so the um, uh, and and we'll we'll debate our own perceptions, but global studies and polls will absolutely show. Um, that Jews are in the role of oppressor today. Um, that our narrative for 2,000 years has been the oppressed, um, and that is still the dominant Jewish narrative today, that Jews are an oppressed group due to anti-Semitism and due to hatred of Israel. 
in, in the world. Um, and, the, and the dominant global narrative is that Jews are oppressors today. Um, so again, that, maybe that could be another session, oppressor versus oppressed, <laughs> and navigating those perceptions and our own understandings. Um, so what we've said so far is that the gear is someone who is vulnerable, and thus we have a, a responsibility to them. And that responsibility has not been hammered out in terms of policy. It doesn't say anything about citizenship. We'll get to that issue later. Um, uh, it talks about um, basic human rights, more or less. Right? Mm -hmm. But there's another narrative. And the other narrative is that it's not just tragic, but heroic to be an immigrant. If you look in Genesis, source 5, what is Avraham told? Lech lecha, go forth. Go forth from your native land and from your parents' house to this land that I will show you. Right? That um, you, for you to leave everything you know to fulfill your destiny as you know it, um, is, is a heroic move. And Rabbi Soloveitchik picks up on this. And, and I'm sorry I'm reading so much, it's a lot of my voice, but just to get through things. And, and we did a poll recently finding out that actually people prefer that I read rather than go around. So we're sticking to that. And it, it works better for the podcast as well. The stranger is indomitable. He may lose a battle, yet had never lost a war. He will never reconcile with political subjection, roaming, wandering. He will escape persecution and oppression. When the need arises, the nomad stands up and fights for his freedom, and many a time proves superior in battle to the settled king. Abraham's heroism on the battlefield is the best illustration. So um, naturally, this, this leads to the conversation of the Jew and the Lotus of um, how to survive, right? Do you know this book? Yeah. So in the Jew and the Lotus, how many of you read that book? Uh, the Dalai Lama's like, wait a minute, how do we survive in the diaspora? Who has figured this out? Oh, it looks like the Jews figured that out. The Jews figured out how to live in a diaspora and stay alive. So let's get their advice. And people like Yitz Greenberg and Zalman Shakhtar Shalomi and other interesting characters. Uh, someone told me Alan Liu was there. Was that right? Alan Liu was there. So um, Blue Greenberg who, who was? Blue oh, Blue Greenberg was there too? Oh, oh very nice. Um, so uh, I'd be interested to read her take. I know, I, I, I know what Yitz would say. Um, so, um, and, um, and part of this answer given here is that it's about the resolve of the refugee. Right, that we were deemed um, by uh, uh, Simon Rabinovich um, as the uh, as the ever dying people, um, and which is actually a source of optimism. Which is to say that he argues that every generation of Jews believed they were going to be the last. They were worried about being the last. Every generation of Jews was like, "We're not going to make it. The threat is too great against us." Right, which is actually a strange source of optimism. Right, <laughs> um, right. But actually, more than the ever dying people, we could argue were the ever surviving people. A, a, a people who have learned a, a deep sense of resilience, right? So going on this theme of, of, of heroism, it says in the Talmud in Bava Metziah, one who has not made good in one place and fails to move and try their luck in, luck in some other place has only themselves to complain about, right? That's to say that there might be an obligation to become an immigrant. You are unsafe in this place. You can't survive in this place, right? Um, you need to... Um, you, uh, you need to get out. You need to get out, right? Um, you need to flee Germany when you're seeing the signs in the 30s, right? I don't care if you need to forge your passports. A lot of people forget this, how many Jews forged their passports in the 30s and 40s, right? You know, everyone talks about, hey, but the Jews came in illegally. I mean, came in legally. Actually, not always the case. Um, and there were really good reasons they forged passports. Um, 
But that hasn't become as part of the narrative. So even if we don't agree with all that, it says in Pirkei Avot, Ve'al tadinet havercha ad komo. Do not judge your fellow human until you've stood in their place. Um, that at the heart of this may be, um, how do we not judge why someone felt they had to flee from everything they know? Um, how do we not move into a negative state, state of judgment um, that this person is a thief um, in our land um, as opposed to understanding, uh, um, you know, uh, starting, starting with, uh, uh, with an eye of charity as to why someone may have fled in the first place. Okay, pausing for questions, thoughts, pushbacks, and the like. Yeah, okay. So, um, yes, please, yeah. What does the present time, how does that impact it in these Oh, good, okay, we will come back to that. Right. The present time. <laughs> okay. We have a question. Yes, please, yes. Good. Oh, great. I haven't read that. Excellent. Oh, good. And Daniel Okren just came out with a book that has to do with immigration of all different groups and what's happening with it. And both of those books are very powerful. Great. Can you repeat the name again? Yes. One is After They Closed the Gates. And I'm sorry, I just blanked on the author. It's yeah. Jewish Illegal Immigration from 1921 to 1965. Great. So actually, so, you know, um, for, for a long time, my, my favorite play, because I grew up on it, was Les Mis. Any other Les Mis fans here? Um, and, it became, and I said for a long time, because now my kids are obsessed with it and require if we're in the car to listen to it. And so literally, I, I, like, anytime I'm in the car, I, I, we're listening to and to the same songs over and over. And they're constantly thinking about this question of Jean Valjean rob, breaking a windowpane and stealing a loaf of bread. Um, and is Jean Valjean good, a good person, because he's feeding his niece with the bread who's starving? Or is he bad because he robbed this house? He broke into a house. Someone who breaks into a house is a bad person. Right? My four-year-old is trying to figure this out. You break into a house, that's scary. That's bad. Right? You should go to jail. And you stole someone's food off their table. Like that's, you know, but his niece was going to die? And so how do you kind of live? You live with that. So what does it mean to break a, break a law? Um, what does it mean to break a law in the, in the interest of survival? Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklowitz. I hope you've been enjoying and learning something new from this podcast. If you have a moment, please consider making a contribution at www.valleybaitmidrash.org. Thank you so much, and now back to the learning. Okay, so, so the Egla Rufa, the Egla Rufa, if you look at this case just briefly, um, over here in, uh, um, yes, uh, the next source, where it says collective and social responsibility, Egla Rufa. So this is a fascinating case in, um, oh, I, I actually didn't put the full source. Oh, yeah, it's in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 21. All of the elders of that city, which is nearest to the slain man, shall wash their hands over the heifer that is beheaded in the valley. And they shall answer and say, our hands have not shed this blood, nor have our eyes seen it. Be merciful, O Lord, to your people Israel, whom you have redeemed, and lay not innocent blood to your people of Israel's charge. And the blood shall be forgiven them, so shall you put away the guilt of innocent blood from among you when you shall do that which is right in the sight of the Lord. So this is called the Egla Rufa, and I've argued to bring back this ritual in part, um, which essentially is someone who nobody knows is found dead out um, near the border. This, some foreigner died near the border, and nobody knows what happened. And so the leaders should come to that spot and wash their hands, essentially taking responsibility. And in this case, they should kill this heifer, 
um, kill this heifer and sacrifice them. Um, because, you know, whenever you have to cleanse yourself of sin, you should kill something, you know. So, um, <laughs> so, um, so, so we should bring back this ritual in part, I say. Actually, in Israel, some rabbis did this recently. There was, there was a, a, a child who was, was hit by someone texting while driving. And they went to that spot and did a, a similar ceremony. Um, and so they, they have a sense of responsibility that a foreigner died in our midst. That's actually our fault in some sense. In some sense, we are, we are culpable for that happening. Even though I don't know how this person got here and what they're doing here. And I don't even know they were here. But like some responsibility even for those who have crossed the border. Yes, please. The, um, the idiom of washing your hands of a problem has just the opposite meaning, right? Ah, yes. Yes, right. Yeah, it, yes, it, it, it was kind of switched, right, that I'm not responsible at all, which is, which, is, it, which is kind of what they're trying to get at. And part of it is trying to remove their own guilt, right? They're trying to wash their hands of the situation. Um, so it could be read cynically in that sense also. All right, here's the last three sources I'll put out, and then we'll open it for some conversation, and Eddie's going to share a little bit of his story as well. Um, this is actually some fascinating stuff I came across recently about how actually... Um, uh, the Jews were dealing with the issue of citizenship. So it says over there in the, in the Babylonian Talmud of Baba Batra, uh, source six here, Huna, the son of Rav Yehoshua, said, it's obvious to me that the citizen of a city can prevent the citizen of another city from immigrating to their city. But if they are included in the king's taxes, they can't prevent them. <laughs> Right? So someone says, oh, I'm really still a resident of that place. I'm just kind of here to benefit from the fruits of this place. Um, actually, you don't get the benefits of being a citizen here. But as soon as you accept the responsibility or that responsibility is imposed upon you of taxation, you now are, um, have the rights to citizenship, essentially. Okay? So yeah. can you have dual citizenship and pay taxes in two places? Well, that, uh, that gets into... Um, you know, so I have the, uh, I, being bo Canadian born, I have the rights to both, or those who make Aliyah have the rights to both, and there's, con there's different laws in different situations about, mm -hmm. uh, around taxation, yeah, yeah. Um, so then Mordechai, the, uh, the Mordechai, a, uh, a legal uh, uh, thinker in the, Midi in the Middle Ages, um, uh, building off this Talmudic commentary says, the citizen of a city can prevent the citizen of another city from immigrating to their city, but if they're including things, the king's taxes, they cannot prevent them. So he quotes the Aviasaf, who writes, I saw in the explanation of Rabbeinu Tam, I know it's a lot of quoting, quoting, quoting. If they are included in the king's taxes means that if they want to be included in the king's taxes, to pay together with them and to carry the burden like the people of the city from here on in, they cannot prevent them from doing that. If they say, I want to pay taxes and they will be like the people of the city. And this is why early authorities decreed harems on settlement, because by way of the decree, they could force people not to immigrate, which they couldn't do from the strict letter of the law is explained. They ask, so it is to say, if someone choose, says they want to be a part of such a society, and they're willing to pay, to buy into that, um, again, this is a pre-nation state idea, so it's a different criteria, but just looking how in, in sort of uh, in an ancient Israel context they would have thought of this and how these halakhists in that time period would have thought of it. And then lastly, the Tor, one, one of the great legal thinkers in the Choshen Mishpat says, a question to my lord and father the Rosh, uh, who is another uh, big source, 
A Jew who wants to go to a town, here he's dealing with a Jew, to live there to earn money, and the people of the town say, you are decreasing our livelihood. Hey, you can't work here, you're taking our jobs, right? You're decreasing our livelihood. And they wish to distance them from the border. Answer, they cannot prevent them, for the Talmud only talks about a person who lives in a different town and is coming to set up a mill or a stone in a different place, and they are not included in their tax. The citizens of that town can prevent them, but it is an obvious thing that a person can live wherever they want, and the citizens of the town cannot prevent them, for did the original settlers acquire the land through legal acquisition? So, um, um, so there, they're grappling with this issue of, of, wait a minute, money can pass through borders, and supplies can pass through borders. To what, to what degree can people pass through borders? Either because they're fleeing something, or because they see business opportunity. Um, in, in some place. So um, it's a relevant question right now. And so I um, do not have any wisdom to share on what policy ought to be um, on various uh, contentious issues that arise today. I do believe the political parties uh, will hopefully, uh, should hopefully one day come together to pass some form of comprehensive immigration reform that works out um, a reasonable uh, solution to the problem that, that Americans can agree on. In the meantime, we can mostly agree there's a humanitarian crisis involved. And regardless of our political persuasions one way or another, um, it's pretty clear that the Jewish tradition thinks we have a responsibility to people in such a vulnerable state. Yeah. Um, regardless of our, our view around the issues of citizenship, um, um, but that those who are, um, are refugees or as a separate category seeking asylum, um, have certain have certain rights. So uh, I'll pause. For, yes, please. I think the most interesting part of the section we just discussed is our very last word. For did original settlers right. acquire the land through legal acquisition? <laughs> uh -huh. yeah. yeah, right. So. Yes, right. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, there's a lot I to say. Yeah. Right. I, um, I was there, and so I took it. Right. I think that was theirs. Yes. Um, and legal acquisition of the land. Is it, so, I mean, I think back, and, and some of you will know a lot about this, so excuse me for speaking something I know very little bit about, um, but um, it turns out that my, uh, my very poor great-grandfather from Poland um, was very wealthy, um, but my grandfather, his son, was very poor, and I was trying to figure out this disconnect. And apparently one of the things that happened in the Great Depression was, um, and someone correct me if the understanding is different, if you had almost all of ownership of property, but not total ownership of the property, and you could not at that moment have the liquidity to pay off that remaining debt, you lost the entirety. Mm -hmm. Which is to say, you paid off 99% of your mortgage, but not the last 1%. Um, you could not pay that off at that moment, the bank would collect. Mm -hmm. No, 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 no. You're, oh, you're saying, no, but, but today it would be a different, it would be, it, Oh, no, oh, no, I'm sorry. I'm not saying you can't pay your mortgage payment at that time. I'm saying they want to collect the entirety at that moment. It's not that I can't make my monthly payment. They now want to collect beyond the monthly payment. They right. want to collect the, the, the remains of the ownership, the, the remains of the debt. During the Depression, yeah. mortgage rates were written differently than today. Right, right. right. Mortgages were very short term, and the yeah. banks rolled them all the time. Yeah. Buildings had one year mortgage. Right. You paid off 
paid your bills the end yeah. of the year, the bank renewed. The depression came, and the bank said, pay in full. Yeah. They said, I've been rolling it every year. I'm sorry, it comes due today. Right, right. It's the person who got yeah. the bait and switch right. mortgage in the right. housing bubble. Right, exactly. Right. For five Good years, point. zero right. interest, and that went to 20%. Right. You lost it all. So here, too, we it's see there's a big fallacy of ownership that has always existed, to some degree, all the more so over the last few decades. Of, what, what, what does one actually own at the end of the day? Uh, and if one was out of a job, how quickly would they lose any access to things that might be perceived to be owned? Okay, so, um, so, so we're going to hear Eddie's story for a few minutes. Um, Eddie's uh, on our VBM staff, and, um, and, uh, and then we can uh, take a few questions, you know, ask him a few questions, and then we'll circle back to some of these Jewish ideas as well. <laughs> so um, thank you, everybody. I'm so humbled and thankful to be here um, it's a great honor to work at an amazing establishment, hand, to side, hand in hand uh, with this amazing man here. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about my journey. Um, I was born in Michoacan, Mexico, which is on the southern tip of Mexico. I was born in a very tough part and time in Mexico. It was when um, they were deciding to completely have a war on drugs. The president decided that they were gonna completely try to target all of the cartels. And at that point, you had the southern states were all farmers. All they did was grow marijuana and poppy seeds. They never had any violence. That's all they did was grow and sell to the northern states. So the northern states said, hey, well, we control the border. We have guns. Why don't we take over the south? They're farmers. They don't know what they're doing. So they came down to the south, and the farmers said, whoa. That's not happening. You think that just because we're farmers, we're not going to retaliate? So they thought, well, let's answer with more violence. Let's be worse. So that's when you started seeing beheadings. Um, you truly started seeing really, really, really bad stuff. Um, I know what the smell of a dead body is. Um, as a young child, I, I'm, I can tell you exactly what it smells like. It's, it's not fun. Um, my mother made the decision after my father um, left her, that raising a single child in a poverty-ridden city, as well as violence literally every single day, as any other parent logically would do, I need to leave. I need to leave this place. And at this point, Mexico was bad all over the place. This was around 1993 when she truly it started getting really, really bad. Um, I was born, um, I look a lot older, but I was born on 95. Um, and this 1993 is when it really got really bad uh, all up into present time. I was born in 95 and I saw my first body as a toddler. I, I think I was three years old. Um, me and my mom were walking by and we, we saw it. And she was like, no, this, this can't happen. So we made the journey to the United States. My mom sold everything she owned. At one point, we didn't have enough money in the journey. So my mom would knock on people's doors and tell them that she would clean their house and cook for them just so she could have enough vessels to buy formula for me because I was still a baby. Once we were able to reach the border, we had to pay a coyote to be able to um, get us into the United States. Well, that went horribly wrong. 
we were walking for about seven days. Um, I remember a dude, a guy got bit by a snake. They, like we just kept walking. Um, so I presumed he's dead. You know, as a child, I don't have the best memory, but I remember like smells. I remember impactful things like that. On the seventh day of being completely lost, we had no idea where we were going. In the middle of the desert, I actually did cross through Arizona, and y'all know how the desert is here. It's really hot. And when you start to lose water, you also start to completely become dehydrated. You lose your notion of where is where. Um, back then, we didn't have any technology. So we, it's not like we could have pulled up our phone and said, oh, that's where we're going. Um, so we actually ended up getting apprehended by Border Patrol. And at that point, my a mother sees the agent. And she presents herself. She says, we need help. They arrest my mom and I. They put us on the ground. Then they pick us up, and while we're in the back, I, I remember this very clearly. My mother said, my child is dying. Do you have any food or water? And I remember the Border Patrol agent looking at my mom and laughing. And as he laughed, he threw um, saltine crackers at us. So imagine if you've if ever had saltine crackers, which I would be surprised if nobody here has that, but they're very dry. Now imagine being completely dehydrated, having to eat that. That was what we got. From there, we were put into a detention center where, let me tell you from a personal experience, it has not changed. The floor was concrete. It was cold. We were sharing the establishment with, uh, the room was meant to hold around 20 people. There was about 75 women. So, like, it was so tight that you couldn't lay down. Nobody slept. They don't turn off the lights. Everything's consistently going. There was one toilet and one place to wash your hands. If you were thirsty, you had a pick of either drinking from the toilet or drinking from the water. It was highly chlorined. Um, I remember my mom didn't drink it because some people were puking from the high levels of chlorine within the water, so it made it worse. We were blessed to then be let go of, um, so I technically was deported. Um, into Mexico, but at that time, migration was a revolving door. So folks came in, and then folks came out. Me, this would have been 98, That's correct. This is pre-9-11. After 9-11, the narrative completely towards immigration shifted. And um, from a personal perspective, I think that a patriotism was shifted into um, a, a false sense of a hateful rhetoric to blame the southern states in order to protect the United States. So the revolving door then became a wall and said, you either can't come in or you won't be able to leave. So folks who said, well, I, I can't even come back here. I'm just going to stay here. We had the, me and my mother had the blessing to be able to be released and then had the opportunity. We found out some volunteers along the border somehow got us in, into um, Arizona. And we actually went to Tucson. And in Tucson, I had my first American meal. And I remember it clearly. It was a, a Whopper from Burger King. And it was a meal. And I remember they gave me a toy. And I was so like confused that I gave it back to the cashier because I thought I was stealing. And I remember I couldn't eat the burger because my mom told me that I couldn't eat cold and hot food at the same time, that it was not good, that it would make my tummy hurt. So I didn't know how to eat this. Right? I was just staring at this like thing. And I was like, OK. But I, French fries blew my mind away. That was like a huge thing. But that was my journey. 
And if it wasn't for what my mother sacrificed to get me here, I wouldn't be able to be here and talk to all of you and share that story of how I'm here. And currently right now, I'm still not safe, even though I pay taxes. I went to school, I work, I consider myself a decent citizen, but till this day, I still carry around my DACA with me. And for those of you who uh, don't know what DACA is, I'll stay behind and I'm happy to explain. But so 20 years you've been here, 19? 20. Yeah, 20. Um, I still carry them with me because of my fear of not knowing that if I get pulled over today, ICE has the authority to put me in a detention center and then ask for my papers. It's, I still live in fear, but I cannot let that fear define me of who I am because I am so much more than a piece of paper or a documentation or a status. I'm much better than that, right? I'm a person of faith, I'm a person of love, I'm a person of compassion. Luckily, now we get to embrace that through my work and help others who are doing the exact same thing that my mother did for me. I think that a lot of today's text really hit me when we were talking about, if you see a dead body on the border, are you responsible? How many of you saw the body of the man with his uh, daughter who had drowned? The picture, it was all over social media. That to me, it made me feel responsible. It made me feel disgusted that this was happening. And it hurt me because I remember, what if that was me and my mother that were there on that picture? What, what would the outcome be if you knew that I could be that person right there? And one last thing that I, I wanna finish off with is this interesting part about paying taxes and to be considered a citizen. Undocumented immigrants cannot benefit from anything that the government provides. It is illegal. If you ask for food stamps and you are undocumented, that is actually a process to get deported almost immediately. You cannot ask for it. But you know what you can do in Arizona? You can, you can pay taxes and they want you to. You can register your car because you can pay taxes. You can legally register your car in the state of Arizona without having a license. How does that work? They want the money, but they don't really want you. So it was very interesting to see that this is the definition of what a citizen would be. Because to me, in my own personal view, I've tried everything to be a citizen, and I still can't be it. But that's a little bit of my story. I'm happy to answer questions. Yeah. Okay, let's take five or 10 minutes just for any thoughts, uh, questions, or anything back on the text or beyond. Yes, please. Uh, for those of you who might have missed it, uh, uh, I think two days ago on the Rachel Maddow show, uh, a uh, young Hispanic boy, maybe 16 years old, was at the border, just as you were describing, uh, and uh, he described the conditions uh, under which he was incarcerated, and they pretty much mimicked exactly what you were talking about, uh, and it was heartrending to me that, uh, uh, that we Americans could do that, the description that he gave was 
very almost identical to what you described, and it reminded me of the way we Jews were packed into cattle cars during the during the Holocaust. Mm. The, 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 the positions were roughly equivalent. Thank you. The profiling issue is even to some degree. Uh, I'll go one step further. In today's New York Times, there's an article about a young boy, also about 14 or 16, who was born in Dallas, Texas, mm. who was near the border. I see some of you shaking your head as you've read this article. He was detained for what was it, four weeks without his mother even knowing what was happening to him. He was finally released. He had his birth certificate with him because he was so concerned that he would not be allowed to pass through any of the requirements. And even with his birth certificate, because of who he was and his name, he was detained. And my emotional response to this is really horrific because like many of us, I suppose, we either have relatives who helped get people out during the Holocaust, or who, <coughs> one of my uncles, may he rest, broke the blockade into Israel, illegal immigration, because they weren't going to let people go. And mm. he broke it by bringing a ship in. He was one of the first captains. It was uh, Josiah, what was the other part of the name? It was the, Josiah, the ship's name was that. Another uncle got people out. We, in this country today, and you may or may not agree with me, are looking at something that is, is very horrific to think about when we think about the dream of America mm. and what America is supposed to be, or the United States anyway, not all the Americas, but the United States. And Langston Hughes once wrote, the land that never was but must be. So even if we have not reached the dream, it seemed to me that in my years, and I'm obviously not a kid by any means. I've watched progress, and now I'm feeling things being withdrawn. That I, I was in protest. I wrote policy papers that were passed that now have been withdrawn. That it's, and watching this go on again, it, I, I actually have a fear for my children, my grandchildren, and for the people around me. And years ago, um, when some of the legislators, I used to do a lot of stuff with And I got a call to go down because the, um, the sheriff's department were raiding high schools, pulling kids out to find out if their parents were legal or not. Mm. And they were pulling these kids out of classrooms. And so we had to get up there and speak to this issue about what is legal in this country and what is not. So. Thank you. Know, yes. Good. Added it. Thank you. Uh, like wh what she's doing now? Yeah, she, she's good. Um, yesterday I called her and I was so angsty because there were ICE was doing raids in Colorado Springs, which is where my mom is. And my mom has a little restaurant. And I called her and I told her to tell everybody to go home. Um, and I, I need you to go home now. She said, why? And I was like, ICE is doing raids about a block down from where you are. I called her. Uh, to see if, if, if her husband could pick her up um, because the threat is still here. Um, even though I have DACA, uh, my mom isn't safe. Um, a lot of people forget. When they, when they look at immigration reform, they forget about the parents. They focus on the dreamers, but they forget about the parents. 
And my mom is so humble that she doesn't care if she gets deported as long as I'm here. But that's not the thing, right? So she is doing good now. Uh, my mom speaks fluent English, uh, which she is so proud of. Um, she loves cooking. And um, one of her coolest things that she got to do was she got to feed the cast of Fast and the Furious. And she, she tells everybody that she, she did that. And, but she's doing great. Yeah, similar example of that fear is there's many who have been, lived here for 20 years who won't go to the ER or get a surgery that they need hmm. um, because that hospital won't be a safe place for them. Um, and so that puts a whole other layer of risk, yeah. I'd like to say something about that yes. risk. Uh, we as a country are putting ourselves at very significant risk uh, because of that. Uh, if an epidemic were started, uh, biological warfare or, or natural causes, and we have a segment of our society that will not seek medical attention, right. uh, that's a petri dish. Uh, uh, which will uh, come, come back to kill us. Right, thank you. Yeah. Um, some of you know me know that my roots are in intellectual history, and that's why I tend to look at everything. And a lot of the people that have views that are adverse to free immigration are always talking about the founding fathers, make America great again, and so forth. Well, let me tell you what it was like when the founding fathers were here and America was great. What it was like was there was no constitutional authority for the federal government to rule on the residents. And residents generally came into the country with no requirement at all except if they came in by ship health inspector from the local municipality would go out to the ship to make sure it wasn't a plague ship. But once he said, no plague, then they could come on board. And the when, when Congress finally got around to legislating on citizenship, the legislation was, if you could show you were a resident here for three months, you were a citizen. They later changed that about 20 years later. It had to be three years. But there was no other requirement. You simply had to be resident in the United States for a certain period of time. Uh, and the, the first time you had restrictive immigration, and it's still questionable whether it's constitutional, by Congress was in the Chinese Exclusion Act. Other than the Chinese, there was basically no other restriction until the 1920s. So most of the history of the United States has been a history of quote unquote open borders. And particularly during the period when certain people uh, have a fetish for the founding period, where America was great. Thank you. Yes, but yes, please. Oh, yeah, there's been a few. Okay, let's go around. Let's go around. Yeah, please.
and indeed the whole process generally took you know six four to six hours and if you were detained and in those days they did call them cages you know if you were detained in the you know while the doctor was trying to figure out your status or if you were if there was some other um, issue uh, the thing that I kept coming across was that you were fed <laughs> you were fed three meals a day and, and I thought my god here we are in the 21st century you know with, with as much money and, and organizational power as this country can wield I mean we go we go on a moment's notice across the world to help in the event of a, of a crisis we go to Haiti we go you know we've been well, Puerto Rico and that even though they're not you know they're American um, just because of what we didn't do there but the fact that we can seem to feed people when they could feed and we're talking about hundreds compared to when we could feed thousands yeah. in the early 1900s I mean that to me is completely appalling thank you thank you yes over here sir. yes please oh yeah uh, a friend uh, sent me an article uh, that talks about how the uh, the U.S. Holocaust uh, Memorial Museum has spoken out against Holocaust analogies to the uh, to our immigration situation, and I'll just I'll just read a little bit uh, of this. A federally funded museum is telling Americans not to think. On June 24th, the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum instructed the public not to consider the relationship between its subject, other historical events, and the present, implicitly rep uh, reprimanding rep AOC for calling American detention centers concentration camps. It, in doing so, it has made nonsense of the slogan never again and provided moral cover for ongoing and oppressive American policies. We have a question right here. Yes, please. Yeah. Um, I have a problem with um, comparing the Holocaust to what is going on at the border because the people at the border, yes, and there is a humanitarian crisis. I would never deny that. But they are not being rounded up to be killed or to be exterminated or to be annihilated from the face of the earth just because of who they are. What we want is for people to be able to come in as citizens with legal rights. And let me ask you a question. Mm -hmm. Do you find your DACA status to enhance or inhibit your opportunities to become a U.S. citizen? There is actually zero pathway to citizenship for documented individuals, and there is actually no real right way to come into the United States as of now. Um, there, we're looking at about 45 years to apply for a visa to get into the United States. So there is no current um, possible way for me to become a citizen. So I, I want to say one thing about that point, and we'll take a few more thoughts. One is that on a personal level, and I, I'm sure this, I know this is a very contentious issue in the Jewish community, yeah. on a personal level, I'm uncomfortable um, with um, uh, equating Holocaust and using Holocaust language for things of today. I, I just feel it creates more heat than light. Um, at the same time, I think it is terribly flawed to try to restrict the discourse or to try to restrict or limit in any sense the moral imperative that comes out of the Holocaust 
to respond to injustices today. And so I think it's very well guided for the Holocaust to be a source of inspiration, not inspiration, but a source of motivation for Jews to be on the front lines. And I do think there are definitely similarities. I just think a lot of caution should be used uh, because of how much sensitivity in there. Not that the use is wrong as much as it, is a, it triggers it triggers those with trauma in a way just like we wouldn't use an abused woman as a metaphor casually, right? Or talk about rape casually because it triggers, even if it might be a fair comparison, uh, and something I personally think we should be sensitive to. Yeah. I would just point out that the German government wasn't immediately rounding people up in order to exterminate them. It didn't start that way. That's not where they went right out of the gate. They rounded people up to get them out of society and to push them away, and then when it became too many and their, their resources were being Great, good strained, point. Yeah. Right. like we see now, I'm not saying that that's right. going to happen, but I will right. so say that, that that's so not that's, what immediately happened. Yeah, so that's, I'm sorry to cut you off. Yeah, no, so, so like that's a great point. To talk about like what does pre-1939 look like? What is 1930s Germany? And the comparisons there, I think, look really valid because out of concerns of what happens if this, if this were to escalate to next levels, I think to compare the 39 to 45 period uh, would be really uh, problematic in some many ways. Yes, please. The other thing is, I, I really don't have a for or against in terms of comparing it to the Holocaust. The comparison, I think, is about human beings. Right. And there right. the comparison is 100%. Uh -huh. You know, because whether wherever we are, when you treat people wrong, and I mean super wrong, then it's not okay. Mm -hmm. Right. Good, good. Uh, okay, okay. Uh, let's, do, let, let's do the final. I, I see one, two, who else? Three. Was that it? Okay, let's do those four, then we'll wrap up. I'll be yeah. brief. So mine is uh, more self-disclosure. I was asking you what years it was because during that time I was traveling to Mexico City frequently, like mm -hmm. three days a month, every month. And I got to know my worker associates very well. And amazingly, while they talked about a corrupt government in Mexico at the time, and I remember them bemoaning the oil company, um, but I don't remember any I was totally ignorant of the problem, and I and I didn't hear about it from the people I was dealing with in Mexico City. Of course, I was flying from Chicago to Mexico City and back. I wasn't at the south, and I wasn't dealing at the border. I don't know if any of that surprises you, but uh, that's how it was. Do you, do you want me to respond to that? Yeah, I'll, I'll just if you want to. Okay, I'll quickly respond to that. So uh, Mexico City is like the New York of Mexico. If you look at it, it's very, very wealthy. Um, so a lot of what the cartel dealings were helping were happening at the outskirts, uh, not of like the capital. Flying over the Michigan Correct. Great. Yeah. Yes, please. Yeah. Just picking up very, very quickly on what Morgan said, I, and, and how we re, read Ismay or do not Ismay in these heightened political times to our neighbors and you know and friends. What your background is, in my mind, almost completely. Serves to inform how you look at terminology. Because I grew up in essentially a Holocaust survivors community, um, the uh, and, and was repeatedly told to me through my view that it started in Germany with chants of "Go back, get back to Palestine." When uh, my you know family's friends or family said. We never came from Palestine. <laughs> you know, we're Germans, we're Romanians, we're Italians. So that informs me in my discussion and why I, um, for example, have a very heightened sense of the use of, of terminology and where it leads. And I agree with you, that wasn't the initial 
Last, uh, last two here, uh, or last three. Just a semantic yeah. comment that someone said to me after reading the article about the Holocaust, which was that what she said to me was there is a difference between death camps and concentration camps, hmm. and that using the term concentration camp does not necessarily refer to the Holocaust, although she did in her statement refer to that, I believe. But the thing is that we have, unfortunately, in this country, set up concentration camps, not necessarily call them that. We call them reservations, internment camps, uh, but they were concentration camps. And, and, and where is our outrage manifest? I, I, I would suggest we should be more outraged by the treatment of these individuals than we should by the use of terminology. Yeah, right. exactly. uh, even if we are uncomfortable with terminology, our outrage should be placed in the proper... One of the two. Jane mentioned earlier uh, to encourage us to read, write, and use uh, poem, uh, and I would echo that. But I wanted to add one other poem. Uh, uh, a uh, Jewish woman wrote uh, that uh, Emma Lazarus on the Statue of Liberty, uh, and I encourage uh, all of us to uh, go on to Wikipedia and uh, or wherever. Yes. And, um, I don't care about the terminology. I think so because because of all that, it behooves us right. to do something. Right. Great, great. That's what I Great. My, my last two or three thoughts, and we'll, and we'll wrap up here. Firstly, one of the areas it is worth thinking about as well, looking at the 30s comparisons, the Germans in their newspapers had a section where they listed the crimes Jews did in the paper in order to uh, foster a sort of xenophobic culture that we should be afraid because fear leads to hate. Mm. And the more afraid we are of Jews, the more we'll hate them in a way that looks similar to some rhetoric today of the fear of the immigrant because fe they know fear leads to hate. So the more we can, we can promote stories that show crimes done by immigrants, the more uh, uh, it'll foster that sentiment. So we should be aware of how media sort of is received into us. Um, and sort of ask questions, why is the media showing this story or this story? Um, which is always good to be critical thinkers, right? The other is that, because I, I care about this a lot, and I also care about the Jewish community, it turns out, and you've probably heard me say this before, that the two, the two factors that used to unite, unite American Jews the most are now our most, two most divisive issues. That, of course, is Israel, which used to be the uniting force of the late 20th century American Jews and is now the most divisive issue in the American Jewish community. And the secondly uh, is... Um, the, uh, the Shoah, which is, can be completely politicized, um, where a sort of right-wing um, understanding of the Holocaust memory is a particularism and a militarization. Uh, never again means don't, don't mess with us. Um, and a, and a left-wing is a universalism um, in a way that never again doesn't mean us, but it sort of means never again uh, anywhere. But essentially leaving the Holocaust as an instrument of unity, not that that's its primary goal in there anyways, um, uh, basically empty. 
um, and, and in a, uh, almost unable to be used as a political argument of persuasion within the community. So that, I don't want to solve this problem. I can't solve the problem. But I just want to raise the tension, actually, um, that, what, uh, that, um, that one of these factors we're talking about, of what does it mean to say never again uh, today, um, is actually not a persuasive argument within the Jewish community anymore because of how, how polarized that is. And um, lastly, I'll just say that if you want to talk to Eddie after, Eddie is, um, if you've got to know him, is a remarkable human being. And if this is an issue, you may have come today just because this is learning, which is wonderful, and you may have come because this is something you really care about and want to get involved with, in which case Eddie is doing this work on a daily basis. Um, when ICE does drop-offs at churches, making sure they have you know, medical assistance and legal support and transportation to get to whatever city they're going to, and tampons and diapers and medications and food. And, 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 and the like. So uh, if that's something you want to get involved in, with it, great. Also, if you know um, people in other cities, I occasionally do border tours where the border patrol, I'll, I'll bring a delegation to come and do a border tour. Or on rare cases, I'll go into detention centers to, uh, to, to do pastoral visits as well. So um, uh, the learning is to be continued. And if you want to get more involved, you can stay and talk with Eddie after. So thank you all so much for a great day. Thank you. Thank you. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklewitz. I hope you enjoyed listening to this fascinating lecture. At VBM, we strive to bring you only the best in Jewish educational programming. To do this, we host a wide variety of events throughout our learning season, including panels, classes, and lectures, like the one you just listened to. Please consider going to www.valleybetemidrash.org and donating to VBM to support meaningful Jewish education in the greater Phoenix Jewish community indeed all around the country and the world. Thank you so much for listening.